0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the sunshine outside. We thank you for the little things. We thank you for leading us this past week, for giving us the strength we needed when needed, when we needed it, for providing what we needed when we needed it, for providing your presence so that we could feel it and we could sense you near, especially when we needed it this past week. We thank you that you are intimately acquainted with every detail of our lives. You want to know everything that's going on. You want us to tell you everything that's going on in our lives as a good earthly father wants to hear from his kids. Oh, Lord, the the major difference is that you are the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the one who breaks through human time and existence, and actually can change things in this world. We thank you for those who uh, continue to recover uh, from COVID and from other illnesses recently. We pray for those still struggling with these illnesses. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the many truths and promises that it gives to us, things that all we have is to cling to these truths and promises. And know that you are gracious and merciful towards us only because of Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that your word would go forth and and work in our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up in central New York State, the major tourist attraction in the general area if you wanted to go anywhere really cool was Niagara Falls near Buffalo, New York. By the way, go Bills. (laughs) What makes it even cooler is that it's just a hop, skip and a jump over to Canada and the Ontario and Toronto area as well. Or at least you could cross over the border easily 15 years ago. Niagara Falls is comprised of two different sets of falls. The Horseshoe Falls, which are on the Canadian side, which are just breathtaking if you've ever been there. And the American Falls, which are, I'll just say, less breathtaking, but still beautiful. Niagara Falls will always hold a special place in my heart, but here are some other powerful waterfalls elsewhere in the world. We already talked about Niagara Falls, but there's a waterfall in Venezuela called Angel Falls, which is actually 15 times higher than Niagara Falls and the highest waterfall in the world. In fact, Angel Falls is so loved by humanity that Paradise Falls, where Coral from the Disney Pixar movie Up, lands near, is based on Angel Falls. Victoria Falls in Zambia is officially one of the seven natural wonders of the world and is the largest waterfall in the world considering both its height and its width. And I may not pronounce this right, but Ketur Falls in Guyana holds the record for the largest single drop waterfall in the world when one considers the sheer volume of water that cascades over it. KTR Falls is five times higher than Niagara Falls and even twice as high as Victoria Falls. But as powerful as these various waterfalls are, there is water that is even more powerful than that. This is water that can and will completely change your entire life. And water, Uh, And water that will even completely change your entire eternal fate. If you're confused by what water I'm referring to, don't worry, you're not alone. There's a woman in the passage we're talking about this morning that also has no clue at first what Jesus is referring to by living water. But we're going to see what Jesus meant when he offered living water to this particular woman and what that means for us today. But before we get to the conversation between this individual woman and Jesus, I want to briefly review what we talked about last week to set up the background and situation in which we find Jesus this morning. By Jesus, by looking at this map, we see uh, Judea down here in the purple and Galilee also up here in the purple. Judea and Galilee are primarily Jewish in population. Then you have sandwiched in between these two regions this yellow part called Samaria. Last week I laid out why the Jewish people and the Samaritans hated each other so much. It all started with God's discipline on both the the divided kingdom of, of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel, that was in this area, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which was down here. While most of the influential people of Judah were carted away to live in Babylon, they were able to keep their Jewish identity and worship of the one true God intact. However, when God sent the Assyrian people group to discipline his people in the northern kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians employed a different conquer tactic. And of, instead of carting away the influential people, they simply took their own people and forcibly intermarried them with the people of Israel, creating a half breed people group that was known by the city of Samaria in Israel and thus became known as the Samaritans. Over the next few hundreds of years, The animosity and discrimination only grew. The Samaritans made the claim that they were the rightful heirs of Abraham's covenant and not the Jewish people. When the Jewish people in Babylon were allowed to return to Judah to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, the Samaritans opposed them and delayed their building efforts for two reigns of Persian kings. Around the same time, instead of helping the Jewish people rebuild the Jerusalem temple, they went and built their own temple in Samaria, set up their own system of worship, and created their own priesthood, openly defying the system of worship found in the Mosaic law. Fast forward a little while, when the Greeks conquered Judah, oppressing them and forcing them to worship the Greek deities under threat of death, the Samaritans not only didn't provide any help, but instead outright chose to ally themselves with the Greeks, compounding the Jewish people's suffering until the Maccabees finally overthrew the Greeks. In retaliation for the Samaritans' alliance with the Greeks, one of the Jewish leaders then went and destroyed the Samaritan temple a couple of hundred years before Jesus' birth. So, we can see the man-made reasons for violence, hatred, and discrimination between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people that existed for hundreds of years before Jesus arrived. So when we get to John chapter 4 and verse 4 in chapter 4 says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, by human standards, Jesus didn't have to pass through Samaria. In fact, most people most Jewish people purposely chose to go up through Perea and the Decapolis up to Galilee and vice versa, completely bypassing this land so they didn't even breathe the same air as the Samaritans. But by God's standards, Jesus had to go through Samaria. God's mission of salvation was to the entire world. So the next area outside of Judea or Galilee, which were primarily Jewish, where that message of salvation needed to go was Samaria. Jesus' salvation was and is open and free to everyone, regardless of race, ethnicity, previous religion, perceived identity, Past, sin, or current struggles. And so, Jesus needed to go straight into Samaria to break down barriers that had existed between these two people groups for hundreds of years and bring his message of hope and salvation to those his fellow Jewish kin hated and discriminated against. That was the first step and bringing his message of salvation and reconciliation through the Holy Spirit. The next step is what we'll be talking about today. We ended last week's message with verse 6, which talked about Jesus being weary from his journey that day and sitting next to Jacob's well near Sychar in Samaria. We already talked quite a bit recently about the traumatic origins of Jacob's well But God's redemption of that trauma as well. And so it's perfectly fitting that this location of redemption is exactly the place where Jesus offers the ultimate redemption of eternal life. John 4, 6 says that it was the sixth hour. If one calculated time using the Roman method, this would have been the end of the day at about 6 p.m. But in lining up with what makes the most sense with how the Apostle John records time in the rest of his gospel, this account is most likely using the Jewish calculation of time, which would put this at noon. We're going to see why this is important in a second. So, first, let's pick up in our passage this morning. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn To John chapter 4, we're going to be picking up in verse 7. If you didn't bring your Bible with you today, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 4. We're going to be in verse 7. We read, There came a woman of Samaria to drink water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. At first glance, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot going on here. But as we dig into this, we're gonna actually see a lot going on here. Firstly, let's go back to what time it was. Remember I said that was gonna be important in a second? What time is it? Noon, okay, so I'm glad you guys could remember that far back, a couple of seconds ago. Okay, noon, where are we? Smack dab in the middle of the Middle East. Where would one not usually want to be in the Middle East at noon? If you could afford to wait, not drawing water up from a very deep well in the intense heat of the day. In fact, most women would wait until the evening around 6 p.m. to congregate around the well to draw up water. So why was this particular woman suffering the intense noonday heat to draw up water? Well, we find out later on that she was pretty sexually promiscuous. Saying that she slept through half the town is not much of an exaggeration. Back in her day, this was a huge stigma. And she would have had to endure the sideways glances, the insults, and perhaps even boxing out from the well from the other town's women if she decided to show up to the well while the rest of them were there. Right off the bat, Samaritan or not, this woman was already on the outskirts of even her own society, ridiculed and shunned by her own townspeople. Speaking of social custom, no self-respecting Jewish rabbi would be caught dead doing any of the following. One, having any interactions with a stranger. Two, having any interaction with a Samaritan whatsoever. And number three, as a man asking a woman one-on-one for water, especially one already known for promiscuity, for fear it would be perceived by anyone as solicitation or at the very least inappropriate flirtation. And number four, having a conversation with this particular woman who everyone in town knew how she lived her life and what her reputation was. And yet what does verse 7 tell us Jesus does? that exact thing he breaks all four of those rules right off the bat by speaking to this woman and asking her for a drink jesus broke every single one of those societal and religious rules as pointed out by one biblical scholar any self-respecting rabbi would rather go thirsty Then ask the Samaritan and promiscuous woman at that for a drink of water. But yet again, this is exactly what Jesus does. Verse 8 also gives us the background for why Jesus did what he did. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. His disciples... Who would have been the ones to either get some water for Jesus or be the ones to lower themselves socially to ask this woman for a drink on behalf of Jesus. Where were they? They were nowhere to be found. For they had gone into the downtown market to buy food. Again, any other Jewish religious teacher or authority would have sat down as far away from this woman as possible and gone thirsty Instead of having any interaction with her. But Jesus takes that opportunity in his disciples absence to do the unthinkable. Actually have any kind of verbal interaction with this woman. Think of it this way. If the disciples had been there, what would they have done? They would have done everything they could have thought of to be an obstacle to Jesus talking to this woman. But yet a conversation with Jesus is exactly what. Ultimately, and all this woman needed. Jesus knew that this woman needed to hear what he needed to tell her about who he was and how she could have eternal life and knew that that conversation was way more important than breaking any societal customs. There's a lesson in there for us as well. What societal or even religious customs are holding you back from having any interaction with and injecting the hope of Jesus to different people. I'm gonna step on some toes here. Is there a religious custom that is holding you back from interacting with someone who identifies with the LGBTQ plus community? Anyone who's transitioning? Anyone who identifies with a gender other than the biological one? Is there a religious custom that is holding you back from interacting with someone who sleeps around or someone who doesn't really live by many morals? Is there a religious or societal custom that is holding you back from interacting with somebody who struggles with drug or alcohol addiction or struggles with psychological issues or struggles with intense depression? Is there a societal custom that is holding you back from interacting with someone from a different race, ethnicity, culture, or religion from you? As we see here and elsewhere in scripture, Jesus broke every so-called religious and societal custom to share his love and message of salvation and hope with everyone regardless of who they were and we must do the same As his followers. It may be uncomfortable. Let me ask you this. When has the great commission Jesus has called each and every one of his followers to. Including us. To bring his love and truth to the entire world. Ever supposed to be comfortable. Never and nowhere. Jesus' love and truth breaks down every man-made barrier, and his church must reflect the reconciliation and unity of his Holy Spirit. This woman probably saw Jesus approach with his disciples, tell his disciples to go into town to buy food, and then sit by the well. So she can tell that he is obviously a Jewish rabbi arriving in Samaria from Judea. The woman is shocked that this obvious Jewish rabbi said anything to her, much less ask something of her for all the reasons we just covered. So she asks this rabbi if he really knows what he's doing, and if he really wants to be talking with her, much less asking her for a drink of water, which she would have have handled and then given it to him. Verse 9. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We've already gone over pretty extensively between last week and this week why the Jewish people had no dealings with the Samaritans, much less take it several steps forward with a male Jewish rabbi speaking to a woman and a woman who everyone knew was promiscuous at that. Jesus is not one to waste time with meaningless banter, so he gets straight to the point, verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The somewhat funny observation about this whole exchange is that as you read throughout the rest of this section, nowhere does it say that the woman actually gives any water to Jesus. We don't know if he ever got that drink or not. I would hope that Jesus got a drink of water at some point, at the very latest, maybe when his disciples returned from the market, but we're not told. All that is important to the Apostle John is to record the words of this conversation between Jesus and this woman. The hope of that conversation starts in what we just read in verse 10. As one biblical scholar references, this isn't the first time we see this concept of living water connected to God. In fact, Psalm 36.9 refers to God as the source of metaphorical and spiritual water of life. For with you is the fountain of life. Water of life. In your light we see light. As water itself is a symbol of life, and the term life referred to a spiritual connection to God and obedience to his law, this was not a reference unable to be easily understood by both the Jewish and even the Samaritan people. In fact, David wrote this psalm while Israel was still united and well before the kingdoms were divided or conquered by the Babylonians or Assyrians. The prophet Jeremiah also used this imagery to refer to God, to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, before they were conquered by Babylon. Jeremiah says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And number two, have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And he goes on to say, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord. What? The spring of living Water. It's directly connected to God. In these references, living water and God as the source of this living water is a spiritual sustenance, peace, rest, and life for one's soul. It's a spiritual feeding of one's soul, it's a peace and a rest. For one soul in the midst of the world's chaos, problems, worries, and fears. It's a life, both regenerative life now and eternal life in the future for one's soul. And what or who is the direct and only source that this living water flows from? God. Knowing all of this makes what Jesus is getting at in verse 10 a lot easier to understand now. Jesus is taking this exact same concept of what living water is and means, along with God being the source, and he applies it to who? Himself! Except now, Jesus calls it a gift. Something that no one needs to work for, but something that is extended out to them and they need only accept it. As the source of living water always was, even in the Old Testament, God, this gift is extended from God himself. Now what Jesus says next in verse 10 is world changing. Like I've referenced time and time again throughout the Old Testament, who is the only one established as the only source of the sustenance peace and life for one soul God now who is Jesus telling this woman to ask for this spiritual living water himself so what is Jesus directly doing with this statement in verse 10 he's equating himself with God the Father It's just one more reference to Jesus claiming his own deity in direct opposition to the critics of the Bible who argue that Jesus never claimed his deity himself. For herself, however, this woman has no clue what Jesus is talking about. She could have, at the very least, Psalm 36 could have been passed down from the United Kingdom days. But she takes everything Jesus is saying as meaning literal water. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, I'm looking at you, and you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? As pointed out by one biblical scholar, similar to Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, both of these people confused Jesus' spiritual truths to mean physical ones. Nicodemus thought it was a new physical birth, and he just couldn't get it. Jesus is primarily concerned with one's soul, and therefore speaks a lot of the time in spiritual and symbolic language, whereas those whose spiritual eyes had not been opened could only perceive of the physical meaning of what Jesus was saying. On top of that, this woman takes a dig at and throws shade at Jesus. Verse 12, You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? In this woman's mind, surely this stranger and on top of that a Jewish person and on top of that an obviously revered Jewish rabbi who had disciples was not greater than Jacob, whose well they were at. In fact, as, they, as is pointed out by biblical scholarship, the way this phrase is written in the common Greek, which John's gospel is written in, conveys that the woman was only looking for and only expecting a negative response from Jesus. Like Jesus says everything he just said, And the woman calls him out on it, to which Jesus hangs his head and replies sheepishly that no, he's not greater than their predecessor, Jacob. What did she expect Jesus to say? I mean, is that truly what this woman expected Jesus to reply with? We can see the sheer audacity, disrespect, and discrimination this woman had towards this rabbi she just met. Interestingly enough, this woman also claims Jacob as her, as a Samaritan, as her ancestor, just as the Jewish people did. If she had really stopped and thought about it, she would have seen the irony of the claim she just made. She just used it as a way to disrespect and discriminate against Jesus as an obvious Jewish man. But deep down, she was really just solidifying how both the Samaritans and the Jewish people had Jacob as a common ancestor. And the ultimate irony of it was, yes, this person she was talking to this person she was taking a dig at was indeed greater than Jacob and in a pre-incarnate form actually wrestled with Jacob about 2,000 years before that. Undeterred, however, and knowing what was really going on in this woman's heart, Jesus replies with exactly what she needed to hear. Verses 13 through 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water Will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Anyone who drinks the same water the woman was only thinking about, physical water, would only thirst again. And you know what? This can be extended to anything and everything the world has to offer. Any kind of physical desire that someone has. Insatiable hunger for more money. Gluttony. More alcohol. More drugs. More material things more sex outside of marriage, more of an alternative lifestyle to biblical teaching, more power, more influence, better job, more distraction, more ways to escape thinking or feeling different things will always and only result in not being satisfied and always wanting more. Everyone who drinks of what physical water represents here will always thirst again. But whoever drinks of the living water that Jesus offers as God will never need what physical desire always covets. Why? Because we are filled with the peace, joy, and hope that the Holy Spirit seals us with and we no longer need what the world offers as counterfeit options for these spiritual and therefore physical needs. When we come to Jesus in repentance and ask him for his forgiveness of our sins and make him the personal savior from our sin and the king over the rest of our lives, the Holy Spirit immediately makes a home within us and starts changing our perspective on everything. We no longer live our lives to satisfy our physical and worldly desires, what the Bible describes as fulfilling the flesh. We live our lives in the peace of knowing that God will provide exactly what we do need has given us instruction and warning against the things he knows will only destroy us and cause us heartache and gives us the truth that whatever we receive in this life or happens to us in this life is all a part of his plan. All of it. That gives us a tremendous source of peace and frees us from the constant and chain-forging, never-ending drive to want more and more out of this world. Why? Well, that brings us to the last part of what Jesus says, this living water of peace, hope, and joy pours out on our souls. It results in eternal life. That's the end game here. Our focus is not on this world. It's not on how much we can get out of this world. We know the truth that in fact this world isn't even our home and will only be destroyed one day. So why even bother trying to get everything we selfishly can get out of it? Now there's nothing wrong with being wise with what God has entrusted to us and if that creates more to use that for God's kingdom. What Jesus is contrasting this with is the selfish desire to To get everything we can try to get out of this world for ourselves, out of greed. We know that we have been created for the next life. In the meantime, we live this earthly life to glorify and please God. God will bless those who seek him, but that's not our focus. Our focus is on glorifying God with every area of our lives, knowing that someday we will spend eternity with him. So what does what what that does in the here and now is create what Jesus describes towards the end of verse 14, a bubbling spring. I've never been to a bubbling spring. But I've watched enough travel shows on PBS to understand that since the water comes from a source deep down, it never ends. It just keeps bubbling up. In keeping with this living water and what this living water represents, this is a never-ending bubbling spring of spiritual peace, rest, joy, sustenance, and life. Jesus uses this imagery of water to describe the source of these invaluable gifts. But what else is described using water and in direct connection with these gifts? Jesus will declare this truth a little while later, which the Apostle John will explain the meaning of in John 7. And Jesus says, The one who believes in me As the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this, and this is John speaking, he said in reference to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There... Jesus and John directly connect the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in one's innermost being as the source of this flowing river or bubbling spring of this living water or never-ending spiritual peace, rest, joy, sustenance, and life, which will directly result in eternal life at the end of this one. We're going to explore more of this conversation Jesus has with this woman next week. But for now, I want to conclude with what what we talked about today. If you're sitting here today or watching or listening online later and you've never really thought much about Jesus but rather you've lived your entire life in chasing after the things of this world, thinking they're going to give you any kind of lasting peace, I hope you've come to the conclusion that everyone eventually comes to, and that's this. None of that will ever give you the innermost peace you're looking for. Instead, you will always want more and more to fill that emptiness that was designed to only find its peace in surrendering to Jesus. Repent of that former life and the sin that ruled in it. Recognize that Jesus took your place to pay the payment of death and hell for you, and take him as your personal savior and king. If you were sincere, about your surrender of your life to God based only on what Jesus did on your behalf, you will immediately be indwelt in your innermost being by the Holy Spirit who will be your unending, bubbling spring of what you've always been searching for, God himself. And the peace, hope, joy, sustenance, rest, and eternal life that comes along with that. If you have surrendered your life to Jesus, but you're realizing just how much of a grip the desires of this world still have on you, surrender that grip that grip to God today. <clears throat> Ask him to renew in you a desire for what really matters. And that's only what he can give as living water to your soul. If you've been distracted... By too many things in this life from what God wants you to be doing, it's time to break off those things in your life and redirect your focus on how God wants you to be living and what God wants you to be doing. And let all of us not allow this world, the kingdom of darkness, or our own selfish desires keep us from truly enjoying to the utmost The living water that Jesus gives to us each and every day. He gives us this living water to enjoy. So let's enjoy it as his children. Don't let the world steal it from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful passage. Not only is it powerful in that Jesus broke every religious and societal custom and rule to speak to this woman in particular. But he gave her the same hope that we need today. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who's just lived their entire life chasing after the things of this world, I pray that they would surrender that, that they would finally come to you and give all that up and take all of you because of what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that if there's anybody here who has surrendered their life to Jesus, but they've just found themselves gripped by the things of this world, or being distracted by all these different things that they're filling their time with, I pray that you would break them off of that, and that you would redirect their focus onto living for you, and doing what you want them to do. And Lord, all of us, all of us who have have surrendered our lives to Jesus, taken him as our personal Savior and King, I pray that we would enjoy to the utmost this living water, that you give to us every day. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.